0: Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us, verse one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey, friends. So welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today on episode 41, we are sitting down with Lauren Fleshman. Lauren is one of the most decorated American distance runners of all time. That's right. All time. She's a brand strategist advisor for Wazelle, A fitness apparel company for women. And she's also the co founder of Picky Bars, a natural food company. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Runner's World. She lives in Bend, Oregon with her family. And today she joins the podcast to share what she's actively unlearning and highlights her book, which is a New York Times bestseller Good for a Girl, a Woman Running in a Man's World. This conversation is rich, insightful and incredibly warm. There's an enduring message of hope that Lauren gives us for for women running today, for young athletes and for the future of sports. Lauren has coined the phrase the performance wave, which helps women going through their natural menstrual cycle and other normal hormonal changes better understand and even embrace the ebbs and flows of their performance and their athletic career. Lauren encourages her readers throughout the book and on this podcast to understand if they stay the course and listen to their bodies, the best is yet to come. Enjoy this podcast, my friends, and share it with anyone who will benefit. All right. Hey, Lauren, welcome to the School of Unlearning. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so honored to have you here. been actually a big fan of your work and you're running for a long time. I don't know if we're exactly the same age, but I remember in high school and college kind of following along with like athletes and being like, uh, just in the know of, of who was doing what. So happy that, um, our paths have crossed today.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, I, I had you on the podcast for a number of reasons. I've been actually a big fan of picky bars for years because they've saved me on many trail runs when I was hangry and <laughs> needed fuel. <laughs> Um, But the book that you most recently published good for a girl, a woman running in a man's world, um, is out and about New York times bestseller. So shout out to you. Um, and I just thought, you know, uh, as a former athlete to myself, it would would be a great opportunity to discuss everything from gender and sports to, to eating and, um, and, and how we view and work with our bodies as women. And, um, and hopefully, get great messages out to the world. So before we get to the book itself, I like to set the stage and learn a little bit more about life for you as a kid. Um, while it is in your book for anyone not listening, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and who were some of the biggest influences in your life?
1: Well, I grew up in Southern California in like kind of the suburban jungle, um about an hour outside of downtown l a. Santa Clarita is what it's called. And um like working class family, like a neighborhood where all the houses were pretty much exactly the same. And we had um, these nice cul-de-sac streets where kids just ran wild, like pretty safe streets actually. So it was a nice place to grow up, uh, very devoid of culture, but but we definitely got to play a lot. And that was a huge part of my childhood <laughs> was play. Mm. Um, in the book, uh, you, you meet my dad right away. He's this very loving boisterous kind of old school uh, misogynistic uh, like prop maker guy and he's also an alcoholic and that his his struggles carry over into my development with the way he he processed his world so my home was kind of a volatile environment from time to time and 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 a very loving environment other times so it's kind of hard to know what version of him we were going to get. And uh, that that combined with my natural desire to be good at things. Um, like I, I was like a person that liked to master different tasks and crafts, piano songs, crazy human body tricks. Um, but then <laughs> I started to com- try to perform for him when he got home from work as a way to connect. And he really loved to praise excellence. And mm-hmm. it became this thing that uh, a way for me to seek his love when his love was hard to consistently come by because of his alcoholism. So I really shaped the early years of my life into what became a professional running career and a career of a lot of high achievement. Mm. Um, and then it took me some time in the story. Part of the story is learning how to uh, pull out those claws of the, the, the unhealthy reasons why you're driven and, 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 hope that what remains is like a true internal desire to be driven and yeah um, that was a fun part of the book to write actually a nice challenging narrative to go through it
0: yeah do you feel like I mean we can get into the book a little bit do you feel like having gotten it down on paper or spoken about it to many different people um that that you have more of a keen sense of um, internal uh, validation and fulfillment for what you do and why you do it now obviously uh, at this point in your life
1: yeah it was very emotional uncovering the degree to which that there were claws inside me whether it was Mm -hmm. my dad trying to get approval and my dad's love or these other societal forces that that Mm -hmm. more people face especially women Mm -hmm. um untangling those things and like I had suspicions that they played a role in my life but I didn't Mm -hmm. know to what depth And when you are forced to to tell the truth in your story and and really try to make it make sense then you're like Mm. oh wow it's kind of worse than I thought and then there's a liberation in (laughs) yeah yeah. in understanding it like feeling like you have a true understanding of what's going on
0: yeah that self-awareness piece is huge and I do think it can only really come through the through the reflection and the expression of it you know I think that's where we solidify like wisdom and learnings is through the processing of it so um I'm happy you had that experience. And as I was thinking about what you shared with your father, sort of the unpredictability of maybe his temperament or what you were going to get, we know that, and I'm sure you know this through your work, and I'm not sure if it's mentioned in the book, but we know the influence of like early childhood experiences, the ACEs score, and how we can assess um, household and how that sort of unpredictability can influence a young developing person. Do you think that actually helped influence or like paved the way for you wanting to be masterful at so many different things that you just wanted so many different avenues to like find connection and find praise
1: yeah for sure I think it was sort of like backup plans upon backup plans of ways to be valued and appreciated and loved and that's still something I have to keep an eye on like it's nice to have that awareness as a grown-up especially as a parent when I'm trying not to repeat the same things for the next generation. Yeah. It's humbling to see just how a child mind works and how you can yeah. end up carrying that for for decades until you address it.
0: Yeah. Um, as you're thinking about, you know, part of the thing I I talk a lot about on my podcast is is the the concepts and the constructs that we unlearn. You know, I think most of most of adulthood is unlearning. <laughs> it's unlearning what we thought we had to be. <laughs> It's unlearning what we thought the world had to be, how we should be, how we should talk, dress. I mean, who we should love, how much money we should have. It's, it's everything, right? And I don't think that process ever stops um, as long as we're sort of in conversation with ourselves. But I'm curious, as you were a young girl growing up in the LA area into sports and play, when you talk about this a bit in the book, but what were some of the things you, the world told you, told you you had to be? you know, as a young woman, like what were some of the learnings the world was giving you through media, through your parents, through sports that you felt like you had to kind of ingest and be?
1: I think (laughs) with female athlete representation, and this is still true today, although there's a little bit more diversity than there used to be, um, there was a message that as an athletic person, you still needed to be appealing to the straight male gaze that your attractiveness maybe even mattered more like you had to prove you still had it that you hadn't been masculinized by sport or somehow somehow participating in sport and being really good at it could be viewed as a sign that you that you don't care what they think and so that's a terrifying feeling or it was when I was growing up of Mm -hmm. what it would mean to be like I don't care what you think it's like no no I very much still care Mm -hmm. here I am Mm -hmm. where with like the ribbon in my hair or mm-hmm. whatever the other symbols are that female athletes tend to demonstrate. And some of them, of course, are doing it from a genuine desire because they enjoy those things, painting their nails or whatever. But sure. some some of it is subconscious in mm-hmm. um, in a society where we feel we don't have necessarily all the power and are worried about it. So um, that was something I had to unlearn. In, and then I'm trying to think of what another – another good one is, um, being like being good,
0: being
1: mm-hmm. uh, likable mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not ruffling any feathers, which is similar. It's, it's yeah. a way of playing it safe.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like through childhood, you never get to fully exhale and just be <laughs> maybe a spaz for the day or just yeah. like cry. Cause you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's a bit of approval and, and finding that safety there, which I do think is part of being human. Like, I think that, That never really goes away fully in many ways, but um, it's more of like, how, how, where can we be with that? And how can we harness that? Mm -hmm. Um, As you got into high school, you started to notice the competition change. You actually talk about in the book that in middle school, you were like crushing it. You were just beating everyone in the, what is it? The mile, right? Yeah. Uh, Walk us through that transition where you're running, you're crushing everyone in the mile, and then all of a sudden you're not.
1: Yeah. Well, in middle school, I wasn't, I wasn't a competitive runner really just in PE class. Once a week, we had to run a mile around this strange course of fields and (laughs) around the basketball courts and past the portables and whatever. So we did that every week and I would be the fastest runner, male or female. And, um, and I didn't know that there were sport differences in, in like ability between men and women. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then once puberty happened, it happened to the the boys around and like it impacted me male puberty impacted me before my own because I was such a late bloomer I didn't hit puberty till I was about 16 Mm -hmm. so um this guy Rocky his body changes over spring break like in in a matter of three weeks he it goes from me beating him every week to him destroying me I mean by Mm -hmm. a, a huge margin while I'm already running my best like I didn't have a bad day And it was very confusing, disorienting. I was like, what the heck explains this? Um, And that's when I learned about male puberty and kind of that fork in the road that uh, differentiates what my body was going to experience and what his body was going to experience. And that was devastating to me because it felt like the first time that I was shown a ceiling it was like, oh, yeah, this idea that you could be the best at anything you work hard at really mm-hmm. has this asterisk next to it that's like, well, except sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and in sports, you could be, you can still win, but you have to be the best girl. You have to be good for a girl, which is part of what the title means. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had to adjust to that. And then it was a little bit of like taking inventory. Okay, well, what does good, good for a girl mean? Like, what does it look like? How is it rewarded in society compared to being the best period or the best boy. Mm-hmm. And there were and still are massive differences in those yeah. forks of the road of what what it means and what the rewards are and the recognition and all of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the gap is large and it's still, I think the gap is closing a little bit, but we could talk about that later in the podcast. Um, so as you're in this place, your, your, your body is sort of, uh, you know, developing and you're hitting puberty, I think high school, and then you start to, you start to also change in sort of your relationship to running. Um, what happens in high school and into college where you start to really blossom as a runner, but then start to see the field around you change as well?
1: Yeah. So since I was such a late bloomer, I was mostly watching female puberty happening around me. So I would, I was developing a little bit more like a boy in the sense that as a, as an athlete and that like, I worked harder, I got better. I worked harder. I got better. I like ra- raised my mileage, yeah, got a little bit better. Um, and that's a typical male bodied experience in high school. And then some of my teammates as they were hit female teammates as they were hitting puberty and getting breasts and hips and their body composition was changing there would be this period of time maybe a season maybe two seasons maybe three where they would be kind of stuck they would be training harder but not getting faster or in some cases training harder and getting slower for a year Mm -hmm. and watching them so many of them going through this but nobody acknowledging that that was okay or normal, or that mm-hmm. there was something waiting for them on the other side of that, this huge rise in performance that this, this like massive peak in their mid to late twenties and beyond that nobody told us about. And still right. most girls don't know about. Right. And so instead it was, there was this gloom and doom surrounding female puberty of like, mm-hmm. oh, when is it going to come and get me? Mm-hmm. And when it comes and gets me, will all of this be taken away? Because I, by this point, like, before I'd hit puberty, I was 14th in the nation. Um, mm-hmm. and that was the year I started to get breasts. And then I yeah. was like, Oh God, what is yeah. going to happen? And doing inventory on all the women in my family, like what are my boobs going to turn out to be? Like my grandmas are enormous and my moms look like this and my aunts look like this and just kind of felt like roulette. Right. Yeah. And the stakes just feel unreasonably high. Um, and I think one of the main points of my book is wanting people to wanting to, um, put words to that experience that is so common of your, the embodied experience of a female athlete with those changes when they're not being acknowledged or supported Mm
0: -hmm. when,
1: when collectively we have these negative associations with it, this fear Mm -hmm. around it that ends up driving a lot of unhealthy behaviors in the female athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, and then making sure that everybody knows that we just have a different performance wave Mm -hmm. than our male peers and, we need, you know, what, how we could in, in the future, um, treat that time of life that feels tumultuous.
0: I love the idea of a performance wave. Like, why didn't anybody tell us that when we were 15 and 18 and like playing sports, I, I played college basketball. And I thought that was like the end all be all like that. That's it. <laughs> I've made it. And I had no idea. Um, it could get better. Actually. You could be more fluid. You could find flow state. You could actually, oh, yeah. you, you could actually be better. <laughs> like I'm 38. I play in adult recreational leagues. I'm not a pro. Right. But like I play so much better now <laughs> than I did at 21 when I was terrified of getting, you know, pulled out of the game, which is a different conversation, but the performance wave. So is, is that something I know you, your work, You you coach, you obviously speak, you write. Is that something you, you want young athletes to better understand? Is that there's much to look forward to.
1: Oh, yeah, that's huge. That could change many people's lives, like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people's lives. And that term did not exist previously. I made it up because there is no term for this completely normal experience that millions of female body people go through. It doesn't exist. And I find that to be enraging, actually, that it's the experience is so invisible, it doesn't even have a name. And if you can't have language for something, then you can't um, you can't process it. You can't build norms around it or support systems around it. It's just an invisible hole in our understanding. Um, and so I, I don't know exactly how to go about continuing to put force behind this concept because I'm not like a PhD in human physiology. Like I studied human biology and women's health yeah. and athletic performance in school, but um, I think it's just, I think it's going to take a lot more a lot more scientific consensus of people deciding it matters and wanting to collect a body of research underneath it. And we've done that in other things like relative energy deficiency in sport or the female athlete triad. Like we've identified concepts and then built out science underneath them.
0: Right. Right. Well, I'm hopeful conversations begin that. And I also feel like being, you know, older in life now, like slash not that old but like wow. <laughs> my oldest I've been yet to date um i look <laughs> i look i look at other runners and other athletes and i'm i'm so i'm so hopeful you know that younger women begin to and, and and men too begin to understand that there is sort of a flow to this and that you can be you can embrace um you know the waves as they come um so take us a little bit through into college one of the most inspiring stories actually and you may be kicking yourself or not. Your first year getting into Stanford University, um, you were a little bit late on taking up the scholarship opportunity and you had to really work hard. What inspired me was the work ethic that you put forth to earn that scholarship and to pay your way that first year. So I felt that was super badass, but also I don't know how it felt for you. (laughs) You felt (laughs) upset about it, but tell us about just that first couple of years at Stanford uh, landing in this incredible campus with some of the best coaches and runners around you and, and just the the, the beginning phase of that period of the next chapter of your life?
1: Oh, well, I didn't think that I would like Stanford. I, I went on a recruiting trip just because um, my coach in high school was like, how can you turn down a recruiting trip to Stanford University? But the in the community I grew up in, which was very like working class, you know, construction, there was this feeling of us versus them, Like people who had more money, people that were in these prestigious universities, people with careers like doctors and lawyers were in a different, like a different world. And, um, and so it just seemed beyond me that there was any way I could fit in in a place like that. It didn't yeah. seem possible. Yeah. But then I also, I was a high achiever. I had great grades and I was one of the fastest runners in the country. And so it seemed like, well, I got to at least go to this place because there is no school better at that combination of those two things. Um, so I went and I was shocked (laughs) that I actually could connect with the people that it turns out there weren't that the the imaginary differences between these groups of people were not what I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I fell in love with the place and I, I like fell in love with Jesse Thomas, who was there, who became my mm-hmm. husband. And, um, and I just could see myself there so clearly. But they didn't have any scholarship for me, they'd already given all the money out for that year, they had this crazy deep recruiting class that me being second in the entire nation, I'd, I was offered $0. Um, but then they said the coach Vin Lana said that if I had a really strong freshman year, if I was all American, if I would like proved myself that I could earn a nearly full scholarship every year after that. And so it was a huge gamble because I had a full ride offer anywhere else in the country really that offered scholarships. So, yeah. um, but I decided to take the gamble. I had to come up, I had to scramble together funds and federal aid and all these things in order to be able to pay for that first year. And it was a bigger gamble than I even knew because stress fracture rates in collegiate runners mm-hmm. are especially females, which are three times the rate of their male peers. I mean, the, the, the likelihood of getting through the college transition without a huge injury is, is very slim. And, um, but I managed to get through it and was a four time All-American and um, I anchored our NCAA champion relay indoors and just had this like incredible qualified for the Olympic trials in the 5k and set the junior record in the 5k like I had this banner year and it ended up opening the door for me but by the time I got to the end of that year. I was so tired, like I just felt like the stakes were so high all year and I had to perform at this razor's edge the entire time. I had It yeah. was like an, an enhanced version of people-pleasing, like I had to prove my worth every day um, mm-hmm. while surviving in campus in this rigorous academic environment and it took a toll and I was completely wiped out <laughs> that summer, but then once I got my energy back, like I was okay, you know.
0: Yeah. So those are the four years, it seems like in the book where you really came to sort of rumble with food, rumble with like, what was your relationship to food? You started to see some of your teammates really display uh, patterns that were harmful and damaging. And some of them was, some of it was conscious for them. Some of it was maybe unconscious Mm -hmm. or a combination. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how you started to, to kind of zone in on your, you talk a lot about in the book, finding your race weight. Um, Tell, tell us what that means for you and how important you felt that was and what you think of it now uh, as a coach and as a um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, this concept of race weight uh, shows up in leanness based sports and probably other sports too, but it's this idea that there's a theoretical ideal weight that your body would perform at. And it's a little bit, well, it's based on male norms. So it's kind of like what it looks like is Mm -hmm. where the number comes from. Traditionally, does it look a certain amount of lean? Um, Does your body fat percentage clock in in a certain range um etc and the female body there haven't been there hasn't been a different standard for female body people in adolescence, traditionally, which mm-hmm. is something that my book argues for. But in the book, I show the damage that causes in applying a concept of an ideal race weight to adolescent female bodies who are in the midst of changing and mm-hmm. should be changing. Like yeah. we should be allowed and encouraged and developed to develop into our woman body because in the end that's going to be our strongest body. But instead we're led to fear that body or try to like microcontrol that body into developing in a very particular way that mimics this male norm. And it's and that's the root of the environment that causes this disordered eating culture, this culture of body dysmorphia, negative body image, um, and that has a social contagion within teams that's really damaging and can last a lifetime, frankly. So that was something I wanted to address and bring to life on the page was how the joy and passion and love of running and and wanting to push myself gets, starts getting infiltrated with all these social messages and behaviors, and actually started when I was a senior in high school, and I went to Foot Locker Nationals, the national championship, Mm -hmm. and I saw my competitors, so many of them not eating, and having um, some of them appeared very unhealthy. Of course, you can't really tell if someone has an eating disorder from what they look like or what they weigh. So these are all assumptions, but there were some people that that appeared very unhealthy who are experiencing short-term gains in performance, like winning, basically. And underneath their skin, you know, bones were deteriorating and their immune system mm-hmm. wasn't functioning. They're, all these problems were happening that I couldn't see, but it was setting a standard for what excellence looked like. And that was the first time the seed was planted. And then once I got to college, I was seeing it in people that I knew and loved. So these weren't competitors. These mm-hmm. were people that I was like, oh man, so-and-so is, has bulimia and so-and-so is afraid to eat carbohydrates and so-and-so, like all these women are trying to control
0: Mm -hmm. their
1: development. And, and I really didn't want to do that. And so I held out for a long time because I had had a really strong voice in my high school coach that told me that, that that could like backfire pretty significantly. And I'd heard of a story of someone who broke the national record. And I read about them in the LA times go on to have to retire from collegiate sport early due to eating disorders. So I knew that it could go in a direction that I didn't want it to go. But eventually those messages did get into my mind of like, once I was really close to the top and trying to maintain my space at the top, wanting a professional career, and the more people talked to me about race weight, I started to kind of embrace it a little bit and look at it as just like another extension of discipline and Mm -hmm. I justified it. And then I started fixating on calories and I started fixating on what my body looked like in the mirror. And then Mm -hmm. the other thing that's just totally absurd about that is that female bodied people, their body changes like day to day. I mean, really yep. like, and definitely month to month. And you're mm-hmm. going to like, for me, I have a swing of over five pounds at different mm-hmm. times of the month. And so mm-hmm. the idea that you should be able to clock in a certain ideal number on a scale on race day, when races can fall any day and your cycle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is so damaging. It's like, it's useless information and it, it's distracting from what you need to be thinking about which is unself consciousness, in order to like find your power yeah so I just but I fall into the same trap everybody else did in the book for a couple years and I think that that is part of what makes the book work because I am at first I'm standing on the outside judging the behavior but eventually it comes for me too and the strength the strength of those forces right and you know women experience this outside of sport in a very significant way as well so it's a human story too And then I had to figure out a way to, once I was humbled by injuries and illness and the things that come with that, climb back out and try to reclaim running and my body for myself again.
0: Reclaim your body and reclaim running for yourself, plus one. Um, There's a section in the book, actually, where I felt really um, tremendous amount of compassion and empathy throughout, right? For everyone, for yourself, and all the people who are facing this sort of gender norm and this this media and the messaging and comparing to the male gaze. Um, But there was a section where you say, I I was doing everything still by the book, like nutrition science. I was still following that. I wasn't skipping meals. I was having a snack when I needed it. Like you weren't you. It's almost like you were obviously hyper vigilant, just observing yourself. Like okay, don't teeter into the uh, mm-hmm. damaging part, but but still do it just just right so that you had whatever weight you wanted to have or just feel the way you wanted to feel. So I, that passage really hit me because I could sense as a reader that you were really um, struggling with both sides of it, like, but trying to find a way that still aligned with your integrity, like your integrity of like yourself and what you had committed to doing for your body and doing it the right way instead of hurting yourself along the way. So I
1: was trying my very best to stay on this quote, good side of the line. Yeah. What kills me is that I just didn't need to be doing that at all. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it reminds me of this conversation I had with this man who's a sports psychologist recently, and he was, really moved by the section in the book that talked about the female performance wave because he's, he gets sent clients that are female athletes and their parents or their coaches are telling them that um, their performance decline is due to something between their ears, that they're not wanting it enough or they're suffering from some sort of crisis of confidence. Um, and mm. then they're receiving all the wrong treatment for something when actually there was nothing wrong their body is just changing and it will continue to change and they will come out of that period of time and they will be fine they will be excellent right and then it's diagnosed as a as an illness as a problem and then they're barking up the wrong tree and you think Mm -hmm. about what that ends up doing to a person to be Mm -hmm. trying to solve a normal uh, puberty problem quote problem a normal puberty function with psychological intervention
0: it's infuriating that's what's
1: happening yeah like I cannot tell you how many times parents have emailed me and been like Mm -hmm. oh my daughter has gotten slower and she was like on track for a scholarship and I think and I see her eating ice cream and I'm wondering could you like talk to her about having um like what a good pro like a or elite athlete nutrition plan looks like and I'm like it includes ice cream yeah the fact that you think ice cream (laughs) is the problem here is alarming
0: Is the problem. You're probably like, let's choose Rocky road and chocolate. Let's go for it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's, that's, it's just, it's really infuriating. You know, I I think a lot about um, just in my work and the things that I do in life. uh, I'm a leadership coach. I work a lot with executives and athletes on just uh, the process of becoming more of who they are. And a lot of the things that athletes too also experience is the sense of Um, just normal grief. Like you lose a race, there's grief. You you lose Mm -hmm. a parent, there's grief. And a lot of times what I have found in society is that we completely judge and, you know, pathologize Normal processes (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you're supposed to have sadness after you lose a race, like let that go, let that be expressed. You lose a friend, you lose a job. And so, I think our culture obviously is a great way of repressing, and that does nobody any benefits, really. Um, but I just you know, I, I saw a lot of that through the book was the sense of repressing um, well, not for you, but probably all the athletes around me, like our true desires. Like if people want the cookie or people want the food, there was a lot of withholding and that, yeah. that withholding plays a big role, like psychologically and, and physiologically and performance and also just mental health. Um, yeah, and
1: I love what you said about pathologizing, like we are basically pathologizing female puberty.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's like, what we're doing. <laughs> why didn't we get the, I, I wish I had the memo. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> Like I actually, so I I ran and it was not nearly as fast as you couldn't even keep up with you on a trail run or a trot, but I was like a 21 minute 5k in high school. So was in the top seven, but some of these girls were running like 18, 17 minutes and I was like cruising at the end. (laughs) So, um, but I, I think that there was this moment of, um, sort of coming over a hump of like, I didn't actually want to be. Um, one of the girls, I think I was really fast young. And then I thought uh, I hit puberty. I started to play basketball and really train and play AU and develop different body type. And then I felt the back of the pack. And I felt a lot of shame and judgment about that because the women who were running 17, 18 minute five K's were tiny. And I was, I had a little bit more of a body and muscle and whatever from, from weight training and basketball. So I remember feeling that shame then, but I didn't necessarily explore it like to the depth that um, I, I can now because I was kind of just like, I was on a track for, uh, no pun intended for basketball in college. So yeah. <laughs> kind of just kind of just ran with that. Yeah. You went um, to the place where you felt like
1: your body was naturally fitting and the, there was the least friction maybe. Yeah.
0: Yeah, possibly. Um, I was still five foot four, so I didn't really stand much of a chance <laughs> with my uh, six foot two point guards in college. But anyway, um, let's talk about something uh, that came up for, for me in the book and also listening uh, this podcast I mentioned to you before with Michelle Cleary, who's a um, psychotherapist and she's a somatic experiencing practitioner, um, which is a really great uh, method that is not new, but in the last 30, 40 years in clinical psychology, people are kind of like the somatics come back to the body. And, uh, you know, it's like, Thank goodness we're doing that anyway. So in her podcast and in her work, she talks a lot about, um, that disordered eating is actually, um, uh, disembodied eating mm-hmm. that, that the behavior, isn't the problem that perhaps we've left the body. We've learned to disassociate from the body for lots of protective reasons. So I just wondered how that sits with you, this idea of disembodied eating versus it being a disorder and it being bad and it being, you know, something that we have to, um, obviously in- interventions are important. But, uh, just wondered what you thought about that term, disembodied eating.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it explains I think, I think about disembodiment and embodiment in the eating sphere, but also in just like standing proud in the body we have, um, mm-hmm. and versus popping in and out of our body to think about what it should look like. or like and in the process of eating, that's popping in and out of your eating experience to think about what you should be eating or what food not necessarily what food sounds good or whether you're hungry or full, but what it, what the diet recommends or yeah. whatever. And then I also think you can have disembodied eating by just watching television while you're eating. Um, mm-hmm. and so that you also, it's whatever takes to me, I think of it as whatever takes you out of the natural biological and evolutionarily developed system for, for feeling what we need or our knowing of what we need and when we need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that is something that contributes for sure. And like this, the pressures of sport have are full of things that pull us out of our embodied experience of eating and just being, because mm-hmm. you're striving, you're yeah. striving to be something else. Yeah. Um, and I liked what you said about how in coaching, you're working to get people to be more themselves. And that's mm-hmm. like it, being embodied is the key to that, right? It's spending less time thinking about who else you need to be.
0: Fully. So I have a theory. I'd love to pause to, to pause it to you and see what you think. Yeah. I think so many of the best leaders and executives in the world, uh, just, just high performers are former athletes and the athlete mindset gets us so far. You know, we learn how to be part of a team. We learn how to push through challenges. We learn so much that benefits us when we step into whether entrepreneurial or corporate world or just parenthood. I mean, there's a grit that athletes have. And I think that that is to be celebrated. I also think that in part of your book, I think alludes to this in many ways is this disembodiment that we experience in running. Maybe we we learn to disassociate. We actually get celebrated for (laughs) running through the pain. We actually get celebrated for no, let no one see your tears kind of mentality. And I think as we retire and we become adults and we don't have to abuse our bodies as much necessarily, maybe that's the wrong word, but um, we, we, we actually have to learn how to have more conversations with our bodies that are honest and, 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 um, true to what we actually need. So the the theory is that I think a lot of the athlete mentality benefits us, but as athletes, um, post-career, we actually have to unlearn a lot of these mantras and these things that don't actually serve us. They, They might actually make us become more of a martyr, you know, like, um, take one for the team and, let no one see your pain all these sort of one-liners we were fed since we were yeah. very young so just any yeah, like
1: cover that? your feelings or whatever it is I think yeah yeah it's similar to just what's re- I mean it's capitalism right so what's rewarded in a capitalistic society we, which is human built um, is blowing through your feelings at least to a point right it's not sustainable forever but yeah. Similar to an eating disorder, actually, a lot of times it will it comes like the the disembodiment with yourself can be a short term advantage in a system that we've created that rewards like rewards such things. Yeah. Um, and so I can see why a lot of leaders and executives take the things they've learned in sport that teach them to blow through their feelings, um, to push through pain, to Pull those long hours to be willing to sacrifice one thing for another thing, um, mm-hmm. holistic health for some other achievement based thing, mm-hmm. um, or to value like uh, your retirement portfolio more than your long term health. Like, we're trained to do that. In, yep. this, in a capitalistic society, but right. then you, eventually you get to the, a certain age where you can't really get away with that as much. Like your body starts breaking down, and I think that there's a reckoning that comes with that. Like a, yep. whether it catches you in your mental health or your physical health first, um, or your social your, a lack of social support, mm-hmm. uh, genuine relationships can and community. Where it turns out you're you're 42 and your entire social network is based on work, and you don't you you know and suddenly that matters mm-hmm. um and then you have to figure out new ways to proceed forward and so I it, that's I think that like the work of doing that is critical for people being able to even stay mm-hmm. in the field like yeah they, they have to do all that on learning to find a new way forward that's sustainable yeah. um, but I also think that we could be changing the structures earlier of mm-hmm. you know and that's essentially what my book argues for in the right sports world is is like can we build in holistic health from an earlier part in our life? Um, And is that even going to negatively impact success or can they be congruent? And I think in sports, like through my coaching over eight years of professional female athletes, I found that that you can do it in a way that's congruent health and high performance.
0: Yeah, I firmly believe both can exist, and when they do exist, there's more success. <laughs> so, um, tell us a little bit more. Are you coaching still these days? And if so, like, how are you approaching athletes? And just knowing what you've been through, what you've experienced with, just the the mentorship that you provide.
1: No, I've I've been on a coaching sabbatical for two years. I found that I couldn't actually finish this book while coaching at the level that I coach. It, there's so much attention on so many small facets of an athlete's life when they're competing at the highest level and trying to achieve Olympic trials and things like that. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to serve them well um, while writing the book. And so I think Right now, I'm really focused on coaching the coaches and coaching the parents through this book, getting the word out the best I can because I do, I do, I know it has an impact when someone reads it and how they view female athletes in sport and sport in general. So I'm going to continue to push that. And then, um, but I do like coaching. I feel like it's such a privileged role to play in somebody's life. Um, I think I'm more likely to work with youth in the future. I try to Mm -hmm. intervene. Earlier in the issues that I bring up in the book, Um, so I I feel like the the amount of travel required for elite coaching and just I guess the stakes are just so high, Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that that's really what I want to do
0: anymore. Super fair, and yes, it's a privilege. the The realm of coaching it's it's a big role. Um, As you think about like up and coming youth in track and field and cross country and across a lot of sports, uh, are you feeling optimistic about the way that? both men and women or uh, young people are developing their mindset, their sense of um, internal confidence, internal self-awareness versus maybe 20 years ago when we were embarking on sports. Do you feel that there's a difference? Yeah, I feel like
1: especially um, our willingness to talk about mental health I think that uh, we're talking about it. I don't know if we're actually addressing it, mm-hmm. um, it like, substantially enough. Actually, I don't think we are based on the data that I've seen. But at least we're aware that it's something that matters, which is different than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, But in, in some ways, things are worse than ever because with social media and the internet, yeah. um, there's more likely to be comparisons that are age-inappropriate, and those are being passed down by coaches and parents that are looking at who's the best what do they look like what kind of training regimens do they do there was no way for my generation to know that so we had all kinds of pressures but it wasn't um the only kind of media pressure we had was who was on the cover of uh usa track and field magazine and if it was a female athlete the rare times that it was what does she look like and she's 32 and now i'm 18 and i think my body should look like that Right. So yeah, that's damaging um, and that we need context for that. But now that's everywhere. It's everywhere on the internet, curated images of people, of women at a different stage of their career that you can't even tell if they're healthy or not. You may be thinking you need to mimic someone who underneath the surface is developing osteoporosis and you won't find out for two more years. So it's just like, it. I think in that sense, the stakes are really high and we're up against a very big monster. Um, We have to arm our,
0: our athletes accordingly. So, um, Kate Fagan, do you know her, her work? I do. Yeah. She was on this podcast and we talked about her book, uh, all the colors, uh, came out and a lot of her work. And we talked about how growing up, she grew up in a small town, upstate New York, how her, you know, basketball models, if you will, or heroes were like all within 25 miles. And you only knew about them because of the newspaper, right? Like you only mm-hmm. knew what you knew and there wasn't social media back then. And there was obviously the pros and cons to it. Um, but just how damaging the level of comparison can be if it's not maybe you know had a, converse- a thorough conversation with or there isn't context. Um, so I think I, I'm I'm hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful that social media can begin a conversation versus be the end all be all of how we mimic and imitate the people around us. Um, and you know hopefully you know your speaking your work your writing will continue to amplify that message. Um, as we close, I want to get to a few important questions about this idea of unlearning. Here for you, I feel like we've been unlearning quite a bit about the um, performance way for women, about um, you know gender stereotypes and um, comparisons, and also you know um, the future of sports. I think for for the youth and for adults, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're unlearning these days um, as you think about your own life. What are some of the things that you're challenging, you're reconstructing, your Um, you're rumbling with these days?
1: Uh, Something I'm actively unlearning is my previous ideas of what family can look like, Mm -hmm. uh, because my partner and I are separating and we are looking at two homes and kind of um, also unlearning what Divorce, what I've been taught divorce looks like. Mm-hmm. So, both of those things, in order to have the imagination to create a, a path forward that's an evolution of our relationship, we do really enjoy each other and each, each other's company. We just don't want to be romantic partners anymore. Um, and so, figuring out like what is possible that is, and continuing to have to pull out the weeds of what we've been taught is just the way it is like what breaking up looks like what divorce looks like and what even like a successful marriage is like um, like we've decided we have had a successful marriage (laughs) because we are glad we married each other and Mm -hmm. that we were together for the years that we were together in that capacity and have like been able to evolve to the peaceful decision to evolve and change our relationship. And so just stuff like that that I think are key. Like if you want to live, if you want to be able to have kindness and love and respect for all the people in your life that are closest to you, you have to unlearn some of the things that that could drive your behavior in a direction you don't actually want to go,
0: yeah, hundred percent. um well, congratulations and it sounds like it's a conscious evolution for you both. So that's great, yeah, um, yeah. and I'm sure it's difficult at times too, but also, you know, Uh, you're staying true to what's important for you both so um and then as we think about this idea of unlearning there is no set definition per se but I always like to ask all my guests this is how would you define it how would you define this idea of unlearning or what comes up for you when you think about the word unlearning
1: I think that there's an unconsciousness to like just kind of like of course this is how it is that's something that's been learned that's so ingrained right um and so I think when you like I'm also unlearning my ideas of um career and success right now so I think you kind of go oh well why do I think that that's how it should be Mm -hmm. and breaking that apart and going oh actually that's not coming from me that's coming from from x and y and z Mm -hmm. and do those things actually align with what I believe or what my lived experiences or Mm -hmm. what the lived experiences of people I really respect and care about are and then go no actually (laughs) so now how can I pick that out of me, like identify the places it has taken hold Mm -hmm. and be very conscientious about removing it. And, and, um, and that takes time. So as far as unlearning, I think it's like a time, uh, a thing that requires time, attentiveness, being Mm -hmm. deliberate, um, and really, um, creative Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: imaginative Mm. so that you can fill the spaces of the things you've pulled out with what you really want.
0: I love that. I've never heard of the words creative and imaginative, um, with like sort of this definition of unlearning. So I think that's, that's a really important thing. I I associate unlearning with a bit of a rebirth, a bit of a beginning again. And I think we, we get to do that. Um, if we get to do that with creativity and imagination would be probably incredibly powerful for us and everyone else around us. Um, so we're going to come to a close. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for many more hours, but I want to be respectful of our time. And, um, I have a rapid fire session if you're down for that. Sure, let's do it.
1: I'm <laughs> oh. terrible at these, but let's give it a try. <laughs> I, b-
0: I believe in you, Lauren. Um, these are simple low lift questions, nothing crazy heavy, but uh, uh, audio book or hardcover?
1: <laughs> uh, lately, audio book. Cool. So that I can do it on my long drives and my runs.
0: Awesome. Favorite trail run ever?
1: Deschutes River Trail right in my town from Lava Island Falls to Bedham Falls and back.
0: Cool. Favorite picky bar flavor?
1: Moroccan, uh, Moroccan world.
0: Okay. Three items you never travel without.
1: Mm, my um, hair product that helps my hair curl and not turn into a giant poof. <laughs> <laughs> um, running shoes. Um, and I would like to say toothbrush, but that's not fully accurate. How the number of times I have to buy one at a Duane Reed or whatever is too much um so let's say a
0: book and what book are you currently reading
1: i am reading take back the game by linda flanagan um which is about youth sports and how they've lost their way essentially so it's a it's a good companion book to mine
0: good up and coming um runner on the scene that we all might want to keep our eye out for
1: oh um I don't know, Uh, to be honest, I'd say, I don't, I'm not really following the up and comer, up and comer running scene, but I'm more inclined to say, follow um, Kara Goucher's Mm -hmm. upcoming memoir and work, as well as uh, Alison Desir's book, Running While Black. I'd say kind of like the, the wisdom of the middle-aged runner is what I'm more into these days than the promise of the future.
0: Good. I'll put those in the show notes too. Um, Advice to young uh, women listening or women who are Um, in the middle age as well just advice to women who are listening
1: don't settle for the static in your mind um, the amount of headspace that's taken up by self-criticism body dysmorphia um, like time spent fixating on what what to eat what not to eat that there is that there is Um, a possibility of having more spaciousness and um, by unlearning those things and claiming that space in your mind and in your heart to love bigger to accomplish the work only you can do in the world and that we just we don't have to live with that static
0: i love it thank you lauren for being an incredible guest i love the work you do i can't wait to support you and follow you throughout um, all your adventures thanks for being a guest so much thanks for the work you're doing thank you Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast. Because our learning and unlearning never ends, and we don't have to do it alone.